through your word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, does humility matter? How far can being humble get you in life? We probably instinctively believe that humility is a good thing. But is humility really worth it in the long run? Is it a path that can just actually lead to us being overlooked uh, rather than getting rewarded? Being humble often doesn't look like the way the world works. Um, I was uh, in a uh, pret around the corner the other day, um, and I overheard a conversation between two men who were sitting a couple of tables away from me. It was quite extraordinary. It wasn't really a conversation. It was more of a monologue. They obviously worked at the same company, um, but one of them just talked and talked and talked about himself. And at one point, he asked this question, who is better than me at my job in our company? And um, the other guy tried to kind of talk back to him a little bit. And every time his friend answered, the first guy would just come back with the same assertion. No one else comes close to him. It, it was comical. I just couldn't stop looking over it. And is this for real? Maybe, though, it was a reflection of an underlying assumption that humility just doesn't work. It's not worth it. And maybe you see that lived out in your workplace. Maybe you work in the same place as, as this guy. I don't know. Um, Maybe you observe it on social media. Maybe you see it in your community. Perhaps you even sense it uh, in the church. And, and maybe today, if you wouldn't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, it might be that a lack of humility amongst Christians is one of the things that puts you off. How can you believe what these people believe if they don't put it into practice? Well, our reading this morning is tied together by this theme of humility. It's very clear in the middle a little bit less so at either end, but, but it is a thread that runs all the way through. Jesus is confronted by and then confronts religious people who were seriously lacking in humility. And humility, he says, is going to work in the long run. What is more, it is, the, it is the pattern of life that his disciples must follow in the present. And so it's worth listening carefully to Jesus, whether we're Christians already this morning or not. Uh, the scene is a dinner party. It is one of those dinner parties that sticks in the memory. I don't know what they were eating, but I bet it was good food. The company is interesting, and the conversation is unforgettable. Um, I've sort of split it up into three courses, if you like. Three courses, three lessons for them then and for us today. First of all, uh, the appetizer, humiliation for the hostile. Humiliation for the hostile, verses 1 to 6. One Sabbath... When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. It's the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has had dinner with religious leaders. It's the second time we're told that they are watching him. It is a threatening atmosphere. Is Jesus going to stick to religious etiquette, or is he some sort of rogue who needs reining in? Well, let's find out. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Now, this man may have come along uninvited. Dinner parties could be sort of public events in those days, but I think more likely it's a setup. Is Jesus going to stick to the Pharisees' strict interpretation of the Sabbath law, or is he going to walk into their trap? Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. 
So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. They think they're on the offensive, but Jesus is on the front foot, and he deliberately pokes the hornet's nest. He had a similar encounter with the Pharisees in chapter 13. On that occasion, he healed another crippled woman on another, sorry, he healed a crippled woman on another Sabbath, and they complained about it. And Jesus said to them then that his act of healing her was a, a visible demonstration of him bringing spiritual freedom which is what the Sabbath meant, is what it symbolized. So have they learned their lesson? Has Jesus changed their minds? Not one bit. You see, they are skewered both ways by his question. If they answer not lawful, they undermine the Old Testament law of the Sabbath. If they undermine lawful, then they undermine themselves and their interpretation of it. They are stuck, and so they opt for the coward's way out silence. Jesus, though, won't let them off the hook. So he heals the man, and then he rubs their faces in their hypocrisy. Then he asks them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. See, the leaders had no compassion on this suffering man. Now, leaving aside how you actually physically pull an ox out of a well, I don't know how you do that. But they would have had compassion on an animal in other circumstances. They certainly would have had compassion on a child. But it is one rule for them and another for Jesus when he's under the spotlight. There's spiritual hostility here, and they are unwilling to be corrected. The leaders of God's people are supposed to care for God's people, but all they care about is their position and their prestige. Uh, Jesus threatens that, and so they turn on Jesus. But Jesus is, is more than a match for these proud religious hypocrites. You know, Luke says twice, doesn't he? They remained silent. They had nothing to say. The point, humiliation for the hostile. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Romans chapter 3. He says, Now we know... Now, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Because spiritual humiliation isn't just for the Pharisees of Jesus' day, it is a danger for the whole world. None of us have kept God's law perfectly. All of us, like they did, try to, try to twist morality to suit ourselves. We, we think that, that somehow... Somewhere, sometime, we will be able to sit in judgment on our Creator. That is our natural kind of bent, if you like, of our hearts. But if we persist in that proud spiritual rebellion, hostility against Him, then we better be prepared for a rude awakening. One day, Jesus says, God is going to turn the tables, and you'll be left with nothing to say. No excuses, no comebacks, no extenuating circumstances. What a dreadful thing it would be to stand before God, our Creator, and be absolutely speechless. To realize that all our clever arguments and schemes have been undone. So perhaps you're, if you're here this morning and, and you know that in your heart you are hostile to God, I can I ask you, will you seek peace with Him? There will be humiliation for the hostile. Wonderfully, that's not the end of the story. Second course, if you like, has a much 
uh, sweeter taste. Honor for the humble. Honor for the humble. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, you see, they're watching Jesus, but Jesus is watching them, and he's not impressed by what he sees. What does he see? Like, elbows out, heads down, eyes to the front, pushing to the front to get the best seats. No humility, but pride comes before a fall. He watched them, and he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited you will, will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Can you imagine a scene like that? Imagine you've gone to a wedding, and you arrive early, and you look outside this lavish kind of reception room, you see the seating chart, and you're looking for your name, and you can't find it, and then you see your name, and you're thinking, why am I sitting there? I'm not sitting there. And then you notice that the top table isn't occupied yet. No one else is sitting down there. You think, oh, I'm going to go and sit there. That'll be good. That's where I deserve to sit. And then, and then the bride's family turn up, and someone comes along and says, you need to move. Get up. Move. By that point, everyone else is sitting down, and, and you've got to go and sit right by the door. See, by that point, you wouldn't even want to sit down, would you? You just want a taxi. You can almost feel the embarrassment because... Self-promotion isn't the way to true honor. It's not the way to true honor in this life. It's not the way to true honor in the life to come either. Real honor comes to the humble. Verse 10. When you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a mirror to the previous scene, but the explanation points beyond a human wedding to God's heavenly banquet. Jesus often described the, the new creation, heaven, as a wedding banquet at which he is the bridegroom. And we can only be honored guests there if we consider ourselves humble sinners here. So we don't puff our spiritual chests out. We don't walk in as if we deserve the best seats. No, we come astounded that Jesus would want us there at all. The 17th century Christian poet and clergyman Robert Herrick, uh, he put it like this. He said, humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. No one gets to heaven strutting their stuff, walking in as if they own the place. The only way to get to heaven is on your knees. Honor in heaven for the humble. Jesus describes that in a bit more detail in the next scene. But first of all, he shows us what humility looks like in practice in this life before we get to heaven. Verse 12, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. So it looks like hospitality, but these invitations have invisible strings attached. Would you like to come for lunch? You better invite me back. Are you free for dinner? I can't wait until you cook for me in your brand new kitchen. But truly humble people, they write a different sort of guest list. Verse 13, when you give a banquet, 
Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Hospitality that, that only invites those who can pay us back says, what is, this, what is in this for me? Hospitality that invites people who could never return the favor says, you matter more than me. Humble guests choose the lowest seats. Humble hosts put the lowest people on the guest list. Both will be honored by God. Honor for the humble. Well, I think it's, it's perhaps not too hard to begin to imagine how we might put this into practice in our own lives as Christians. So first of all, we, we, we cultivate humility in our hearts. We recognize I'm a guest, an invited guest to God's heavenly banquet. and I don't deserve to be there. I only go there because of his grace. That's the first thing we do. But, but then we also extend that grace outwards to others in real humble hospitality. Uh, James, in his letter, he took issue um, with people, with Christians who didn't do that. In James chapter 2, he says, If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? No, the way that we, we welcome each other at church should express our humility. We don't just look out for the person who's like us, who's good company. The person who's, who's like a tap, who only ever pours into our life. Now we also, and especially, welcome people who are the exact opposite. Individuals that we find personally quite hard to connect with. People who are more like a sink. People who maybe drain our energy and our empathy and our emotions. People who are more like that rather than, than a tap that fills us up. You know, churches are full of tap-like people and sink-like people. And we may be a, a more like a tap in one season or more like a sink. Or some people... Maybe in life, 90% of the time they're a tap. Maybe some people, actually 90% of the time they're a sink. God loves both. Genuine hospitality amongst Christian people offers it to all people. Whether you're a sink or whether you're a tap, that is a sign that we're learning genuine humility together. I wonder how, you're, how we as a church are doing at this. Maybe on Sundays when we see people that, that we know well, people we've never seen before, people we maybe see and we think, I know what your struggles are in your life. Maybe people we see, we don't know them, but we just sense that they come with baggage. When we offer hospitality to each other, do we offer hospitality thinking, I wonder how they can repay me? Or do we offer hospitality thinking, I've received a welcome from God. I'm going to welcome people hum humbly, even if, I can, even if there's no chance of being repaid. And I wonder if that kind of welcome just it spills out, not just from this building, but into our homes as well, or into the way we do other ministries, in the, or things at the moment, or maybe things in the future. It struck me this week as I had an encounter with a man here. A town center church is likely to be a place where we attract people who can humanly speaking, unlikely to pay us back. What about in our homes? Are we a church that are thinking, I want to have people around for dinner and not just people who can have me back for dinner. 
if space is an issue, are there other ways we can do hospitality? Saying, why don't we hang out in the park with the kids? Why don't we meet for a coffee or a walk? However we do it, however we do hospitality, do we do it with an attitude that is, what's in this for me? Or how can I bless them? Because as his followers, Jesus calls us to be humble in the way we are guests and the way we are hosts. Honor for the humble. If we learn humility like that in this life, we can be confident that God will honor us too. Also in the life to come, as we learn, um, if you like, in the last course, the dessert of this um, wonderful dinner party. Uh, Finally, heaven for the hungry, heaven for the hungry. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. You can almost um, smell the piety, can't you? It's sort of pious presumption. Jesus has just spoken about the resurrection of the righteous, and here is a man who is very, very confident that he and his friends are going to be there. That he's going to be welcomed by God into heaven. But Jesus is on the front foot, and he says, Yes, you're right, but who will eat in the feast? in the kingdom of God, because it may surprise you. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. These guests, they've returned their RSVPs. They've said they're going to come. It's time to enjoy the feast. And then the excuses start trickling in. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. He doesn't want to risk missing out on his latest business venture. I guess maybe seeing the field was a bit like signing for it. It, Something more important has come up. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. This man is a rich man. Apparently in those days, if you were a farmer, you'd have one yoke of oxen. This guy's got five. He's on his way to check them out. Something is more pressing. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Now this guy, I think, is just plain rude. There's no request to be excused. No attempt to be polite. Someone more attractive has got his attention. But this party won't be postponed or rescheduled. A new guest list is going to be drawn up. Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Uh, Bride-to-be, Quinn Duan. She was all set to celebrate marrying her boyfriend of four years at a Sacramento four-star hotel. Everything was booked. The guests had been invited. $35,000 had been spent. But then her fiancé called off the wedding. What an idiot. But Quinn and her mother did not call off the banquet. They rang around homeless shelters, and they advertised a free meal. And 90 people, children, parents, grandparents, they tucked into a lavish lavish three-course banquet. And her house was filled 
with the most surprising guests. The kingdom of God will be like that. Heaven for the hungry. See, the Jewish leaders, they assumed that they were going to be there, but you know what? They had no appetite for it. Other things were more important. Other things were more pressing. Other people were more attractive than God himself. But God won't allow his preparations to be derailed by pride and presumption and pathetic excuses. First, I think, he brings in people from among God's people, from among the people of Israel, who who no one would expect to be there, the spiritually poor, crippled, blind and lame, the broken people. Next, he goes out beyond the people of Israel to get many more. Verse 22, servant, uh, Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. What's going on here is it's a picture of the time after Jesus' death and resurrection. The invitation goes out beyond the people of Israel to the Gentiles, to you and me, to the country lanes of the world, to people who are spiritually poor, to people who are weighed down by the debt of sin, to people who are blind to, the, to God's glory, who are spiritually lame, unable to walk into heaven by themselves. But God says, you're welcome, come on in. And what is more, he says to us, go and invite other people. Because I think in this story, we are not just the unexpected guests. We can also wonderfully play the part of the master's servant. He is told to compel people to come. Now, we don't compel people to come into the kingdom of God. but We do do our best to persuade people. Uh, The Apostle Paul, again, he says this in 2 Corinthians 5. This is just a few verses after um, the reading we looked at in our Vision Sunday um, back in, in September, October. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Try to persuade others, come into the banquet. Someone has said, haven't they, um, that a Christian is just one beggar offering another beggar, telling another beggar where to find bread. That is true, but it's more than that, isn't it? We're not just telling people where to find bread. We're telling people how to get into a banquet. It is our privilege to tell other people that God has a seat prepared for them in heaven. All they need to do is come. We may ask, why doesn't everyone get into heaven? I know a few different answers to that question. But an answer given by this passage is is that some people just don't want to go. Some people are just not hungry. Many were invited. Many made excuses. And so they missed out. So warning for us against our presumption and pride. We may be here this morning and we may look the part, but is there real, genuine hunger in our hearts? Is there a recognition that we don't deserve it, but that God has made a way for us to be there? Or are other things more important, more pressing, more attractive than God? It's also an encouragement for us as Christian people, to go to people who we think they are never going to say yes and invite them to come. 
Because who knows? They may be hungry. They may just not know what God has done, how God has served them to satisfy their hunger. So it's an encouragement to us as Christian people to invite people from all sorts of surprising places, the country lanes and roads of our lives, people from different cultures and communities. Not those who've got it all together, but the spiritually poor and crippled and blind and lame. People who look like you and me, people who don't look like you and me. There's a seat at the table. And even for you today, today, if you, if you, you know yet, you know today you haven't yet given your life to Jesus. If you are hungry for heaven, God says heaven is for you. Does humility matter? Is it worth it. It certainly does, and it certainly is. It is essential in our human relationships, but it is even more essential in our relationship with God. If we persist in hostility, proud hostility towards him, we can be sure that humiliation will come. Jesus won't let us off the hook. We won't have an excuse. We will be silenced. Humiliation for the humble. If we humble ourselves before God, accepting our status as undeserving sinners, gladly receiving his grace towards us, on our knees, we will be changed. We will look to honor others in real life, unpaid back hospitality, and we can look forward to God honoring honoring us, honor for the humble. And finally, we can look forward to enjoying his honor in the heavenly banquets. Do you know, um, Quinn Doan, she, she put on that amazing banquet for those 90 people, but she was too hurt to turn up. She stayed at home. God won't stay at home. Or, sorry, that's not quite right. God won't not turn up to the banquet. God will be at his banquet. The food will be great. The company will be even better. Some will make their excuses to come. So let's not stop inviting. And let's make sure that we don't miss out ourselves. Heaven for the hungry. Should we bow our heads and pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. We come before you this morning acknowledging that we are spiritually poor and crippled and blind and lame. We thank you for inviting us to your heavenly banquet. Please help us not to miss out. Please forgive us for hostility in our hearts. Help us to lay down our pride before you. Help us to offer genuine, humble-hearted hospitality towards one another and towards all people and help us to do that most of all as we seek to offer others the gospel of Christ that they might know the joy of heaven as well for we ask these things in Jesus name amen